In April, we started a journey that brought us to this exact place in Scripture where we look at the birth of Christ. So this may be the perfect year to see its true meaning. We began in Genesis 1 with God speaking the world into being by the very word of God, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And the first thing he said was, let there be light. And there was light that pierced the great void, the great darkness of non-existence. And that began the story of creation. And now we, having traveled through the whole Old Testament narrative, come to this point where John, summarizing this most important event in all of history, goes back to that very first part of the Old Testament, that act of God's creation, uses it as a metaphor to describe God's final word, who was Christ. The same word of God that spoke everything into being was the very word that was made flesh, and in his coming fully reveals who God is to us. And that word, John says, was the light that shined in the darkness. God spoke light into darkness and creation began. And in the New Testament, God speaks through Jesus light into the darkness of our hearts and recreation begins. It's beautiful. We're going to be just for a few minutes in Luke chapter 2, and I ask you to turn there with me. Beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place with Quirinius, who was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There's a few hints here that help us ground ourselves once again into this story as it's meant to be understood. And the first is is verse 1. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken for the whole world. Luke is the one writer of the Gospels who makes it a point to ground the story of Jesus in history. Luke himself is a well-educated historian. We learned a couple of weeks ago that the reason why he writes the gospel is to lay out as clearly as he can through careful research by eyewitness testimony, the story of Jesus, the reason why he begins chapter 2 by talking about this empire that has been set in motion by Caesar Augustus is to help us understand that this is history. We saw a video that reminds us of all the stories (laughs) that we've thrown on top of the Christmas story. And it's so easy for uh, our society to just bunch it all together into nice stories. Luke doesn't let us get away with that. So the first thing we see here is that this is the real deal. Luke wants us to understand these are the facts of the circumstance in which Christ was born. 
But the other thing we see here, besides it being grounded in history, is that it's grounded in the work of God, the sovereign hand of God. We've seen over these 35 or more weeks how God's sovereign hand is at work throughout history in spite of man's decisions, through man's decisions, seasons of silence and seasons of God speaking and working, seasons of great defeat and devastation experienced by the children of Israel because of their own unfaithfulness and seasons of great victory. In all of it, we've seen the hand of God. And once again, we see the hand of God moving. Think about this. He moved in the heart of the emperor of the world. He set a whole empire in motion in order to move Joseph and Mary to the place that Micah had said four centuries ago would be the very place that Jesus was born. It reminds us of our grounding verse for this series in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, where Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman in order to redeem. Fullness of time is most often used to speak of when a woman is ready to give birth. So think about this. What we see in this verse is that coming together. There's a pregnancy in history. God has brought all this to place just at the time that the text tells us that Mary is in the fullness of time. History and Mary meet in this moment. History ready to give birth to a new creation as Mary is ready to give birth to the child of God. Now, I want you to go down to verse 7 because what we see in this simple and very familiar, extremely familiar passage is a foreshadowing of the mission of Jesus. And we often miss it because we do tend to hear it, as you saw in the video, through sweet music and, and, and shepherds and lammies. And, and we see a very sweet, innocent, yes, I said lammies, sentimental, pull-your-heartstring kind of a scene. I'd like you to look at it as though you were reading it for the first time and try to imagine that you are a first-century person. She gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The thing that you would pick up almost immediately is that Luke is making a point to help us understand just how poor the Holy Family is. We'll see a glimpse of this next week as we go into the rest of the chapter when they come after the period of purification for Mary and they come to the temple in order to offer sacrifice. It says that they offer two pigeons. The book of Leviticus helps us understand that those are for the poorest who cannot afford anything else to give. They could offer pigeons. Luke is making a point. He wants us to understand that Mary and Joseph are among the lowest class of people. And then we see three descriptives here. Luke, the master storyteller, three strokes of his brush in order to paint a scene that helps us understand the circumstance in which Jesus came. The first, he's wrapped in cloth, swaddling cloth. Luke makes a point to repeat that later. The angel said that's how the shepherds would recognize this particular baby. Not just that he was in a manger, but you'll see him wrapped in swaddling clothes. That was a very common way to wrap babies, but only for the poorest. This is not a baby who is born into privilege. So the first thing we see wrapped in cloth is that Jesus was born poor. The second thing, in a manger. We've used that phrase so often now that we forget what it was. It was a feeding trough. 
in a stall where animals were still living. It hadn't been turned into a home. The very place where animals had recently fed was where Jesus was laid. And the second thing Luke's helping us understand is that Jesus was born quite literally homeless. And then the third thing we see is that there was no place in the inn. Now, we think about the the mean innkeeper and we think about all these busy people. But what this really means is that Joseph had absolutely no influence. Jesus was born in insignificance, without any influence. Joseph couldn't knock on a door, invoke any name, and get any kind of special privilege. He had to settle for the bottom of the bottom. Luke is trying to help us paint a picture that is not sentimental. It is not sweet. It is stark. It is tragic. It is almost inhuman. Jesus came in poverty and in rejection. And in the mix of capturing all that emotion, we're supposed to see this as God's fulfillment of his plan to recreate the world because he's constantly helping us understand how all this fulfills what the prophets had spoken of. In the life of Christ, we see almost 300 messianic prophecies fulfilled, all of them fulfilled in the life of Christ. Luke makes a point of that, so we recognize, yes, this was God at work. He moved an empire in order to move Joseph and Mary to this place. In the midst of all of that work, the intent was that Jesus was born on the outskirts of society, on the outer limits. What kind of plan is that? Let me contrast the use of dark and light again. Uh, First in Isaiah 9, in fact, I'd like you to say this with me. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then back to John chapter 1, more about Jesus who is the light. Let's say this together. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The New Testament writers, as they look back through the coming of Jesus to the prophecies, understood what God had said even long before the prophecies, that through Abraham, God would not only bless Abraham's seed, but he'd bless the whole world. And so this light that would shine in darkness, the people walking in darkness, while it was immediately meant for the children of Israel who were in exile because of their disobedience, in great darkness, darkness of their own making, looking for the light that would come, the Savior that would deliver them. John says this same light was for all men. This was God's plan. Darkness represents evil, suffering, sin in the world. Were you and I to devise a plan for God to come and deal with it, we wouldn't picture a baby born in poverty. We would picture a king with authority and power, a king who would come to judge evil, to deal with evil, to eradicate evil from his creation. But there's a genius to why Jesus came this way. You see, how Jesus came was a foreshadowing of why he had come. The simple truth is, if we were most honest with ourselves, if we thought of where evil dwells 
and ask God to come and eradicate it from his creation. The simple truth is not one of us would be left. When we think of evil, we think of Hitler, 9-11. We think of the shooting in Connecticut that recently happened. Those are great acts of evil, but all of them came out of the hearts of humanity. And when God looks at evil, he needs to look no further than each of our hearts because darkness is in all of us. Praise God he had a different plan than to simply come and eradicate evil. We see it further by Isaiah, back to Isaiah chapter 53. Let's say this together. He was despised and rejected by men, like one from whom men hide their faces. Hide their faces. That pictures the act of shunning a society that turns from someone and says, you are not part of us. This is what Isaiah said would characterize the life, the work, the mission of Jesus. And we see it here. What we see in the manger is a snapshot of what we will see 33 years later in the passion of Christ. Let me draw some contrast for you. Jesus was rejected by an innkeeper at his birth. 33 years he'll be rejected by Israel. At his birth, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a borrowed feeder. 33 years later, he would be wrapped in strips of cloth and laid in a borrowed tomb. Now we see him in a wooden manger. 33 years later, we will see him on a wooden cross. You see, Jesus did not come to bring judgment. Jesus came to bear our judgment. And Luke wants us to see that from the very beginning. We've thrown so much sentimentality on it that we miss the brutality of it. In John 1, John goes on in talking about Christ and says to all who receive him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is the final turnabout that we see in the coming of Jesus. God's son becomes human, becomes mortal, and is rejected. And in fact, he's rejected by God himself on the cross. The son of God is rejected by the father so that in turn, you and I might be accepted by the Father and become sons and daughters of God. it's, It's all here. It's all here. And the best thing that we can do in response to the real story of Christmas, the true coming of Christ, is to do exactly what John said, to acknowledge, to believe, to receive Christ, because the same Christ... who who was the Word made flesh, who came and incarnated Himself into our world, still comes. He incarnates into our lives. He dwells in our lives when we allow Him to come in. But we don't allow Him to come in as a weak baby. Allow Him to come in as a Savior and a risen King and let Him recreate light, life, and the darkness of our hearts. Let's pray together. Perhaps as you've 
been getting ready for Christmas, you've been more caught up with the to-do lists and the shopping lists to focus once again on the purity, the beauty, the harshness, but yet the majesty of this story of the Christ who would come. He took our sin. He took our death. In exchange, we become the righteousness of God in Christ, and we have life forever. Father, thank you for that. I pray for those in this room who, who perhaps have contemplated this true story of Jesus for the first time. And I pray that they would recognize that the same God of the universe who spoke through his son Jesus wants to speak life into their darkness, into their spirit, and recreate them into newness of life. And I pray this season of all, they would accept that gift of forgiveness in life. In Jesus' name, amen.